Hello there, welcome. Thank you for joining me on First Responder Psychological Support. This is Season 1, Episode 8. And today we are doing an introduction to understanding trauma. Uh, but as always, uh, I want you to take a nice deep breath in and I want you to expand the chest and then just exhale and allow your body and your mind to orient toward listening. And if you need to, pull those shoulders down and away from your ears. Maybe spread the toes, right? Right inside your shoes if you're wearing them. Or just push down and rock on all four corners of your feet. And just really ground yourself. See if you can ground yourself. And if you're not standing or sitting where you can ground yourself through the feet, go ahead and root down into your sit bones, right? Go ahead and let yourself just sort of become heavy and maybe a strange direction if you're rooting down is to also straighten the spine and act like you almost have a string at the crown of your head that's just gently pulling you up to your tallest height and really feel that in your body, what it feels like to root down and sit up straight at the same time. And like I said, take maybe another breath if you'd like to and just exhale into that energy. Uh, see if you can get yourself to transition or to just stop what you were doing uh, before you get started with something like a podcast on the topic of trauma. But in the last episode, I said that we would be talking about trauma, complex trauma, and PTSD today. And maybe I want to just visit the idea that I identify as a trauma therapist. I believe as someone who's been treating all different types of trauma and being an EMDR therapist has, you know, caused me to maybe label myself that way professionally. And certainly many other therapists have different specialties and there might be other trauma therapists out there and they may orient toward this topic differently than I do. So I want you to keep an open mind that a lot of the reason why I'm going to talk about it, why I'm going to talk about trauma the way that I do is largely um, a consequence of working with first responders. So, you know, 10 plus years of talking to firefighters, law enforcement, dispatchers, nurses, um, it kind of has amounted to where I'm at today. And I'm sure I will evolve from here as well. But to get started, I was thinking about the term or the concept of tabula rasa. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before, but it's by John Locke. It was a philosophy, actually, a philosophy concept. And tabula rasa means blank slate. So this is a theory that we come into the world with no preconceived ideas or predetermined goals. So John Locke was talking about the fact that when you are born, the mind is blank and then it starts to acquire information and knowledge and a personality. The opposite of that theory was, you know, would probably be the doctrine of innatism. So the root word is innate and the doctrine of innatism, which is 
let me say this, it states that the mind is already in possession of certain knowledge. So that would be the opposite of a blank slate theory, right? That we innately have something already built within us. And this certain knowledge was in a way maybe predetermined, or it was preconceived by yourself, right? And it's an energy about being a human. So the question then becomes, is your life and your personality random? Or is it shaped and molded by the experiences that you have? I, of course, have concluded that it's a combination of all of that to be, I think, the most realistic and inclusive in understanding not only myself, but other people. Uh, I understand that there's empirical knowledge and that there is metaphysical knowledge. Now, what the hell does that mean? Empirical knowledge is worldly knowledge, earthly knowledge, measurable, tangible, like I can look at my hands right now and I see them. So that's empirical. Um, But metaphysical knowledge is something that we can't really understand because we are not, if we were ever, in our soul form right now. So your spirit or your soul or celestial knowledge, knowledge about the expansive universe, uh, that's getting into like more spirituality and maybe even religious beliefs. I see that there are those two types of knowledge. And when I think about empirical knowledge, the worldly knowledge that I have about being human, um, I know that there's many essentialist arguments, right? And an essentialist argument, we're talking about biology there. So what is science? What is empirical? What is provable, tangible, or measurable about a human being? And Another empirical source of knowledge would be the environmental factors, right? That's how you're socialized. So if I say that my conclusion is that it's a combination of tabula rasa and the doctrine of innateism, I am giving some credit when I say there's a combination factor to your biology and how you have been socialized in your life. But I also will add a spiritual factor. I do consider myself a spiritual person, even though I'm not religious. And that spiritual factor, I kind of describe it as knowing that I have two sources of knowledge. I have said that in previous podcasts where I said, your head is your ego and your heart is your self. And when the head and heart are in alignment and they're not in conflict or having a problem with each other, that that's a very spiritual thing for me. Uh, So I enjoy the idea also of looking at these two sources of experience, the empirical experience, the worldly one, and the metaphysical experience, which is that soulful, spiritual experience of being a human being on an earth that is quite chaotic and, of course, as I say, filled with egos. So I I feel like I have to talk about that before I say, let the trauma begin. (laughs) I uh, definitely think that trauma begins uh, even before the womb. And so I'm going to explain that for a second, because when I do an initial assessment 
for a client that wants to do therapy with me, I start from the very, very beginning. I will ask about your pregnancy story. I will probably say something like, I know you don't remember your mom being pregnant with you, but do you remember her talking about her pregnancy with you? Uh, And it's amazing that people will be able to answer that, right? They'll say, yeah, she'll say that I was an oops baby. She'll say that I was a difficult pregnancy, or she told me that she craved this particular food or that this particular thing was happening, happening the year that she conceived me. And that's a part of my life story. And we identify with that. And we identify with it because when our moms told us that story, uh, we, we lock it in. We remember it enough that when someone asks about it, you have an answer for it. And um, I know even, for example, I was a 10-pound, 10-ounce baby. <laughs> uh, that's on my birth certificate, so I can't forget that I was 10 pounds and 10 ounces. But they also broke my collarbone. Uh, My mom tells me, you know, I don't remember it, but I think to myself, well, there's a trauma right there. It's like my my first experience on earth, you know, as a big baby. And if we think about it, that may be the first trauma, but I can sometimes get metaphysical and a little crazy. And I think about how I was a cell in my grandmother's womb, right? kind of laugh about that. But when my grandma was pregnant with my mother, um, I was a little cell inside of my mom. And then when my mom, as a fetus, of course, had all of her parts as a baby, I had half or she had half of my DNA right there. So I go back, you know, as far as grandma and mom, and so do you. And I had to cycle through her whole life before I was born, in a way. And that that's an intense thought that maybe could seem irrelevant, or getting too much into the nitty gritty of things. But I do want to talk about the idea that being in your mom's womb is literally how we prep and start to organize our energy to survive the environment that your particular mother is bringing you into. And That's a big deal because if you are living in the projects, let's say, as a woman and you become pregnant, the moment you become pregnant, if you are not getting the nutrition that you need, if you are not hydrating the way that you need, if you are constantly stressed out or arguing or in danger, that's a completely different environment than, let's say, a woman who is living in an affluent neighborhood and she has all the nutrition and the hydration and medicines needed. And she's rarely stressed, let's say. She has a a comfortable pregnancy, uh, if that's possible. I don't think pregnancy would be comfortable. Some of you may know I've never been pregnant and don't plan to be. I I don't uh, have children. But I think that the way that you are developing in the womb and how you were born is significant significant enough for me to ask you, how was your pregnancy story? And then I ask, how were you born? Did you have the cord around your neck? Were you a C-section? Were you breech? Were you premature? 
Um, did you have any developmental diagnoses? Did you have asthma, for example? Were you jaundice? What happened to you? Because these are your beginning experiences in a pretty harsh world. And I'm curious what you tell yourself about those very beginning experiences. I'll then move on to ask you about from birth to three years old, did you walk, talk, and potty train on time? And people know the answer to that. They know if they didn't walk right away or if they walked much faster and sooner because they had an older sibling that they were chasing around. Um, they know how they talked if they needed a speech therapy or if they were a talker or whatever kind of personality you started with. Um, we usually report in about that to our children. And then, of course, did you potty train on time? which is important information for me because um, it is, we have evidence that girls potty train uh, easier and faster than boys. And so sometimes boys can experience potty training as traumatic and controlling and difficult and a source of failure or that your first punishments and getting in trouble and how your parents cope with you potty training uh, is huge in your young development. And I will also ask um, if there was some challenges or difficulties, if there was any bedwetting, um, which is called enuresis. Enuresis is peeing outside of a toilet. That's a sign of some trauma and difficulty going on with the family's ability to cope and do potty training, um, possibly. Or there's also encopresis. Encopresis is when you poop outside of the toilet. Uh, we don't want you doing that. But some people uh, had potty issues up until they're eight years old or even up through high school. And again, that has so much rich information about your psychology, about your environment, about how your parents handled it. What, did they have access to care or not? Did they know better? Um, or were they neglectful or possibly even abusive? So again, we're talking about trauma today. So I'm showing you <laughs> through this podcast how I start to assess by asking you all these questions in an initial evaluation if you're one of my clients. So from there, what I do is I say, I want you to think about being eight years old and younger. That's about third grade and younger. And I will ask, do you have any specific memories in that time frame that you think that I should know about? And some people will say, well, my, the family dog died, or I was so close to grandma and she died, or there was a tornado, um, or we had to get rid of our dog. There's usually a story there that has an emotional quality to it that I may jot down so that I can understand what your beginning struggles were and how you dealt with it. I'll also ask, how were your grades? And a lot of first responders will say, you know, I was average or they started above average. And then as they age, they become more just average. Some guys actually very much so struggled. They were below average because they'll, in their words, they'll say, I didn't apply myself or I just wasn't interested. And to be honest, I think my experience definitely reflects that many first responders were more social than academic. So if they were struggling academically that young, they may have 
strengths in another area. Like they played sports very well and they had neighborhoods of friends and groups that they were a part of. But after I get that information, I then ask you to think about being nine to 12 years old. So I will remind you that that's fourth grade to eighth grade. You're not quite in high school yet. And do you have any memories at that age that you think I should know about? Because this is more of an independent place, right? Eight and younger, your parents kind of are more involved in those stories. But nine to 12, you're a little bit on your own. And it might be, well, that's when my friend drowned or I got bullied or, you know, something happened that maybe nobody else knew about. There could be um, sexual experiences at that age uh, that you have kept secret for a long time or maybe something that one parent knew about but the other did not. And in that time frame, I will ask how were your grades because I want to know, did they take a dip or did they improve? Because when children's grades kind of go to hell in a handbasket, it's because there's too much emotional stuff going on around them. And again, I'll ask, what about your friends and your social life? Is this when you started smoking pot, when you started drinking alcohol, where you're both your parents working and you were unsupervised and you and your siblings fought a lot? Like what was going on? And then of course, I will ask about high school and I sort of give the direction of if you want to break it down from freshman, sophomore, junior, senior year, or just tell me once again, any memories, what was your social life like and how were your grades? Because again, that tells me so much about what you were focusing on or what you were going through. And, you know, in high school, again, sometimes we start to realize, I don't know if I want a college prep. I don't know if I'm interested in a professional career. Um, Some of you have already identified with wanting to be a first responder. Also, that can happen, right? You have memories from the past or something that happens in that high school time frame that just orients you toward being a firefighter or a Leo, uh, maybe a nurse. And um, dispatcher usually is something that people notice later or if it's in the family, it's an idea that you know, it passes through those generations and they connect in this type of work in first responder work. So high school is also a wealth of information for me to see what traumas were there. How did you traumatize yourself? How did you cope? By high school, you may have developed some themes that could be evidence for me to understand your repetition compulsion, meaning how you try to recreate problems to see if you can have control over them. And so I do go on because some people have gone to college and some are doing college later in life. And I give you guys so much credit for that because I would never go back to college. At least I don't think I would. I don't want to. Um, But some of you, while working full time in these dangerous fields and you have spouses and you have children, you go back to college. So I am... I am fist pumping for you over here. (laughs) That's amazing. But I do ask about college and what happened. Some of you did go and you dropped out. Some of you went and you got drunk too much or some incident happened and it pulled you back for some reason. Not that um, you don't finish college. Some do. But I think in my experience, they end up getting out of college and they go to paramedic school and they become an EMT or they do the police academy. Some of you, by the way, in high school were in 
that cadet programs that um, law enforcement and firefighters have. But anyway, what I find sad about the college story is that sometimes, often enough to mention it in a podcast, I hear the could have been stories. I hear how maybe you wanted to be an ER doctor, not just a paramedic, or you did want to have an advanced degree, but your life just didn't unfold that way. And I've said this before, that sometimes there are a series of traumas in the first responder lives that I hear about, and they develop into adults, you know, that have the story of, you know, when I was younger, I wished someone would have saved me. I wished someone could have rescued or protected me, but no one did. So I grew up and you know what? I can do that. I can protect or help save and rescue people. Of course, that can be a little bit of the beginning of that codependency that I've mentioned in previous podcasts. But sometimes what I find to be very sad is that you had a shit ton of potential that you weren't able to actualize because of the complex trauma of your childhood. So that's a really intense part of the story and we're only at college life. So then what I'll do is I'll ask, so how did you start the career? And again, I hear about, you know, police academy or fire academy, uh, going to get your EMT B and then paramedic school. I always ask about those experiences and how they went and what was the first impression I also like to hear about your probation year or your first year on the job. Um, What impressions did you get? What did you learn? How did you get socialized into this career? Who was a part of that? Because that in itself is very shaping and molding uh, of your career and the rest of your life in the career. I will ask about injuries because injuries indicate a trauma whenever we hurt the body in any way. It's important to give that credit that that is a mental and physical injury. I will ask if you are bothered by any of the politics or bullshit of your department, because that is also what I would consider a type of trauma. You know, what's going on with the union and the administration? Uh, Do you have a target on your back? Are you well liked? Are you in the clique? Are you bullied? Do you do the bullying? Um, I would consider all that politics and bullshit. What's the village like? What's the board like? (laughs) You know, what's the mayor like in your city? Are you well funded? And things like that. But I also, when it comes to your career and work, I will ask you, have you ever been disciplined? Because how you've been disciplined tells me a lot about your repetition compulsion and how you self-sabotage or how the department targets you or how you simply just need to learn, grow, and develop as a professional in the first responder world. And then, of course, the big question is, do you have a top three calls that still upset you? If you sit down and think about them, do you have a set of three calls that upset you? And at that point, I'm not asking you to go deeply into those traumas or calls that are upsetting, I just want you to name them because usually they have a bit of a flavor to them that also connects to some of the things that you told me in the prior questions. Um, Sometimes they have nothing to do with your past, 
but maybe it's three SIDS calls or three pediatric calls that upset you, or there are three different fires where incident command, you know, wasn't helpful, um, or you didn't think that they were helpful. It could also be, man, there were three suicides. So they don't have to be similar in nature. I have definitely heard of the one, two, and three not relating at all to each other, but I definitely want you as you're listening to this podcast to think about, is there a theme and what does bother me and what what do I relate to? Because when we talk about those calls in particular, that that's the PTSD part. So I want to explain that when I ask you about college and younger, that for me as a trauma therapist is your complex trauma. I call that complex trauma because it's very webbed into your personality. It's webbed into the way that you cope. And it's very difficult to undo because you maybe spent 21 years saturated in this view or perspective of the world and life. Whereas the calls could be very separate or very triggering from your past. But PTSD is an American Psychiatric Association diagnosis. It has an ICD-10 code, which means it's billable as a medical issue, right? So we acknowledge that on a huge platform that if you meet the criteria for trauma, you have PTSD. And according to the American Psychiatric Association, the criteria includes what I have talked about in previous podcasts. You have a life-threatening incident, whether it's yours or someone else's, whether it's witnessed or experienced, and you get intrusive thoughts about that. So even though you don't want to be thinking about it, you continue to think about it. You have avoidance techniques for better or for worse, healthy or not, you're trying to avoid not being in the hamster wheel about that memory. And because you can't avoid it and the intrusive thoughts keep coming, the fourth criteria is you get negative cognitions, right? So your mood changes, you have negative thoughts, you have negative feelings. People may say you're not acting like yourself or you've changed since that call. So that's what we mean by negative cognitions. And then the fifth criteria for diagnosing PTSD is hyperarousal. So you're a little bit jumpy, sensitive, and vulnerable about the topic of your trauma. And I have said before in previous podcasts that with first responders, I see a lot of PTSD with the qualifier, the diagnosable qualifier of, it's called with delayed onset. So many first responders will compartmentalize the trauma or the experience of the trauma so that they can finish the job, right? So if you go on a dangerous call or a traumatic call, uh, oftentimes during it, you may not experience it as traumatic at all. You're just at work doing your job, but it's when you go back to the station or when you go home the next day or you haven't slept for a few days that you realize, oh my gosh, that call's starting to get to me. So acute stress disorder is when you experience those symptoms, but they expire before 31 days. So 30 days and less, you have acute stress disorder. But if that call goes beyond those 30 days, we can diagnose that as post-traumatic stress disorder. And 
that's very important for you guys to understand because in future podcasts, I will definitely be barking about that. I get all heated about this topic, about how the first responder world does not acknowledge the profession of psychology appropriately when it comes to this. And their forms about psychological injuries don't exist. And if they do, they're really not helpful. And in my experience, I haven't seen any. Um, Maybe in FMLA paperwork, that might be the easiest form for me to fill out. But anywho, I will digress and get on my rant page. I'm going to come back to what else I ask about. So after I find out about your complex trauma from 21 years old and down, I find out about your post-traumatic stress disorder trauma by asking about work and what the environment is like there. Then I go into marriage and family. Um, I will ask about who you were married to or who you are married to, if you are. And I'm always curious about how did you meet? How long did you date? When did you get engaged? Whose idea was it? Did you feel pressured? Was it mutual? And then, of course, how did your wedding go? Because sometimes people have some funky wedding stories. Uh, Also, life trauma, right? How did the family get along with your engagement and your wedding? How did your honeymoon go? Did you end up fighting on the honeymoon or did it go great? And did you family plan? And on that note, I always ask, how's parenting? Like, are you guys on the same page or are you... Uh, arguing about this because that's a constant daily stressor if you're not agreeing about parenting. And the other of three items I ask about regarding marriage and family are your finances and your sex life. Because if your money isn't right, that's another major overwhelming source of stress. And how is your sex life? If that is not going well, then you're not getting that love and affection or that touch. We're not releasing oxytocin. We're not creating a balance in the body. And that's not giving you permission to go home and say, Sarah said I need to get laid in order to feel better. That's not what I'm saying. I mean, it's kind of what I'm saying, but it doesn't mean that you can use that as an excuse to go home and try to get laid. Um, I want you to be able to do that genuinely in the relationship and authentically uh, with consent And I will definitely be talking about your sex lives in another podcast. How fun would that be, huh? It's not that fun when it's negative. So there's my warning. But any whoosie. Um, Marriage and family tells me a lot about how you're doing. That's a point that I really want to make. And what your repetition compulsion is like as well. Because once again, repetition compulsion is a concept by Freud, Sigmund Freud, that says we have a tendency to want to act out our traumas over and over and over again to see if we can control how the outcome goes. And that, of course, is a silly idea because I, I'm going to remind you right now, there is no controlling these external factors in this earthly existence. That's not going to happen. But we can empower ourselves, which might sound a little cheesy, that word empowerment, But the way that we can make ourselves powerful, I described in the podcast about how we deal with pain, that we need perspective, purpose, productivity, pride, pleasure, so that we can feel powerful as human beings in this lifetime and actually and really reach our potential. But once again, I digress a little bit. I want to tell you that from marriage and family, 
I will again really have this idea about your repetition compulsion, which is what I call your trauma. So let's put these three together. Your complex trauma in the cerebrain as a trauma therapist is 21 and younger. Your PTSD trauma is those incidents, right? They're critical incidents, potentially traumatic events that you have experienced. And your trauma is how you keep trying to relive that shit. And you do. Your trauma is your own repetition compulsion, how you self-sabotage, how you use coping mechanisms instead of coping skills. And a lot of that happens to first responders because they do not have a way of learning about psychology, not in a clear, uh, comprehensive way. And if you're going to do a traumatizing job, like literally you have careers that will create so much anxiety and yet you have no training about anxiety or depression or trauma in your annual training plans. I mean, not that I know of. Sometimes I'm the only training that a department has had. So I want you to notice that this is how I have learned or begin to learn about your trauma. And Maybe another thing that I mentioned in previous podcasts about signs and symptoms is before I end that initial assessment, I will ask you a set of questions. I ask you, how are you sleeping? Most of you can't fall asleep or you can't stay asleep. Sometimes it's both. And you don't know how to go back to sleep after a call or you have a hard time going to sleep after a shift. I ask about your appetite and whether or not you've lost or gained weight in the last three to six months. I want to know how are you doing right now that you have asked about therapy and that you're starting therapy. And some of you will say definitely gained weight, right? Um, I think I hear more gaining weight than losing weight, although that does happen um, with some first responders. They're usually my vata body types. So I've studied Ayurveda, which is an old ancient wise Indian medicine. And they say that there's three body types, a vata, a pitta, and a kapha. So kapha are our gentle giants, pittas are our medium-built people, vatas are our smaller uh, petite people. But I'll digress on that too. I usually can assess that just by looking at you. But I ask about sleep, I ask about your appetite, and I ask about your exercise routine because if you do not exercise, that puts you in a risk pool in my mind. We all have to get a workout in. It releases the endorphins and the serotonin and the dopamine in our body and oxytocin even, especially if you work out with someone. So that that's a great reset for your physical being. And when your physical being feels good, the mind gets clearer. When the mind is clear, it's more likely to exercise as well. Um, it's hard to work out when your mind is heavy. But I want you to pay attention to how you're sleeping, how you're eating, if you're exercising or not. I ask about what medications are you taking because that will then tell me about your medical diagnoses and how your body is handling the story you just told me. And some of you, once again, I mentioned this in the signs and symptoms, I get the, I'm taking Prilosec from my GERD, I got Excedrin from my headaches, I'm taking Imodium AD for my explosive diarrhea, I'm like, what the hell are you doing, bro? 
geez louise, that's a lot, plus my high blood pressure medication and all this other stuff. So I ask about medical and medication that you're taking. I'm also curious about your own self-report about three moods. Are you angry? Are you anxious? Do you have panic attacks with your anxiety or not? And then the third one is, do you think you're depressed? And people tend toward anxiety or depression, but they also mention, yeah, I think I am angry. And so I'm curious about your own self-diagnosis and how you think about yourself when it comes to your mood. And then I will also go into, have you ever been suicidal? And have you ever been homicidal? And we usually chuckle a little bit at that. Some people are like, yeah, I'd throw him down a flight of stairs. But once again, I digress and I've never had, well, I lie. I've had a couple serious disclosures on homicide ideation, but not enough to, to focus on it in a podcast. So once we get through that and we do some suicide psych education, usually my last question is about religion and spirituality because I'm curious how you orient toward life, this world, and the complicated mystery of it all. Like the nature of being on earth to me is always fascinating. I tend to overthink about it a lot if you can't tell, Um, but I do enjoy my brain and I enjoy how it thinks. And I hope that you are learning how to think about your own existence and your own trauma and how this all unfolds itself because the goal of course is self-understanding and the more that you understand about yourself and your career I definitely over the last 10 years have witnessed how much better you can do I love seeing the progress I love seeing a first responder who is helping saving rescuing protecting other people finally fucking do it for themselves and um I just f-bombed but that was all right it's my podcast, right? <laughs> Shoot. I almost said ship. Anywho, um, I love that is what I'm trying to say. Because many of you start out with so many negative cognitions, which brings me to day two of the assessment. Usually a second appointment with me is I ask you what your negative cognitions are. I have a sheet in my office If you typed in Google negative cognitions EMDR, it would probably show you the page I'm talking about. There's on the left side, a list of negative cognitions, and on the right side, a list of positive cognitions. And I'll ask you to look at the negative cognitions and read out loud any of those negative thoughts that apply to you. And the sad story is that most people list, I would say on average, five or more Every now and then I get one or two as a response, but I I bet I would say my average is five negative cognitions about the self. And I will ask you, how does that make you feel? And I'll give you a little emoji sheet with all the, the feelings on it. And you can tell me what it's like to think this way about yourself. And once I have those feelings listed and you're kind of sensing the thought and the feeling together. I will ask you to close your eyes, scan your body from head to toe. Where do you feel this conversation right now in your body? And anybody who says, I feel it in my head, that's all ego. Like you're not feeling your feelings quite yet. 
But if you can tell me it's in my shoulders, it's in my chest, I feel it in my solar plexus, my stomach or my gut, or it's almost like my back tensed up in my shoulders talking about this, then I have assessed if you can feel your feelings, if you have a felt sense, or if you are in you know, denial, if you're ignoring, numbing, or minimizing the pain that you just spent an hour plus time talking to me about in your initial evaluation. And my goal is to get you to go from these negative cognitions to noticing those and then noticing how you feel to build the coping skill within you to be in a state of non-reaction, non-judgment, and non-attachment to everything that you have ever known and just start to feel intuitively. Because when someone is in touch with the felt sense of who they are, they have a very nice, strong, healthy connection to self. And when I talked about mindfulness in a previous podcast, I talked about how important it is that your head and heart knowledge are aligned with one another. And this is how I assess how well does yourself and your ego get along or are they separate from each other? Because if you can get into the felt sense of what your emotions are telling you, because they are, that's so much wisdom in the body, then you will start to be able to think on the positive cognition side of that sheet that I'm talking about. And that positive cognition side is really a beautiful snapshot of how you should be thinking about yourself. And what's sad is a lot of first responders look at those positive cognitions and they go, oh, nope, not me. <laughs> and it's sad. It's, it's terrible. But they're like, no, I can't think like that. That sounds selfish. Isn't that narcissistic? Doesn't that mean you're full of yourself? No, dude. No, that's how normal, healthy people are able to think of themselves so that they can live their best life so that they can achieve or succeed or just be happy or comfortable um, with discomfort even, right? We have to be comfortable with discomfort in this lifetime because it's definitely going to happen. So if someone is struggling pretty severely before we start trauma therapy or other types of therapy, I might go into what I call resource development because if you have a bunch of coping mechanisms, I want to switch that to coping activities and coping skills. So some of you only do coping activities, by the way. You'll tell me I play hockey or I go golfing and I work out or I do have time with my friends. Those are coping activities and I love that. Uh, it means you have a life, right? Which is good, a life outside of work. But I also want you to learn coping skills, which is about using your talents, your skills, your mindfulness, aligning the head and heart knowledge and all these things. So I really will use resource development to chip away at the brick wall you may have become because some of you are straight up brick walls for real. And maybe on that note, I can talk about a little bit of a difference that I see between police and fire. I would say in my experience, firefighters are by far more open to therapy and the process of therapy, whereas law enforcement is still highly questioning what is going on, why it's happening, and they get very resistant. Um, sometimes they drop out of it way faster than firefighters do. So I think on the law enforcement side, we need more education 
and we need more psychology training and not so that you can help other people, but so that you can help yourself. Uh, maybe the other difference that I see between law enforcement and firefighters is that law enforcement has by far more trauma in their personal life. That's my personal experience as a first responder therapist, but there is a lot of trauma in their personal life, whereas with firefighters, there may be some trauma, but definitely more active trauma with the incidents that they're responding to. So again, it could be very different from another angle or point of view. I'm just uh, reporting in my own personal experiences on that one. So maybe one more thing I want to talk about. When I talked about complex trauma happening 21 years old or younger, I was talking about what other psychologists and therapists would call developmental trauma because as you're developing as a human being, we've interrupted that process somehow. And in that way, there are many trauma therapists that will say that the entire DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Disorders that the American Psychiatric Association puts out for us so that we can diagnose um, clients with different disorders, let's say, a lot of trauma therapists believe that that entire book of disorders is developmental trauma. And so I'm going to plant that seed right now because it may come up as I speak. Again, different types of therapists, different orientations, but people who experience developmental traumas can tend toward anxiety disorders. They can tend toward depressive disorders or even things like bipolar, impulse control disorder, uh, a lot of other issues that I may cover in this podcast. So again, I'm mentioning it now and I'm planting that seed. But what I'm going to do in the next podcast is I'm going to talk about how do we treat this? Like if this is what the problem is, how do we treat first responder trauma histories and trauma experiences? And I'm going to try to explain EMDR the best that I can and hope that I give it the integrity it deserves but for right now, this episode was definitely how I try to assess and understand trauma. As I've been through this career in the last 10 years with first responders, this seems to be the method that works for me as a therapist so that I can get started on what the real issue is and we don't waste any of your time, energy, or money uh, coming into therapy. So, I want to thank you for listening to First Responder Psychological Support. And again, I'm Sarah Gura. I'm a licensed clinical professional counselor for first responders at the Self-Care Path in Burridge, Illinois. And as always, do life so it doesn't do you. And take good care. Stay very safe. All right. Bye-bye.